Aside is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Born in a fight, you know that's all you'll ever be. Hello everyone, welcome to Thorn in Your Side. This is M, and um, I'm doing my best today to simulate a football podcast. It could be the Wanderers podcast, uh, but I don't know. It's like I'm very tempted to um, do what normally happens on like a football podcast and basically try to make myself sound really cockney. And when you hear all those guys that are on those football podcasts, you can just tell basically their accents just derive from like watching a bunch of Guy Ritchie, smoking a few cones and playing FIFA. That's what informs their hardcore accent, right? What the fuck was that, mate? What's the matter, little man? You can't handle playing with the big boys. It's not Premier League, is it, mate? Well, if you can't handle it, then don't turn up, bro. You're a slimy twat. Have your fucking game. Oh. Uh, I'll try not to uh, do that. I might just try to keep it Campbelltown on my end. So I'm trying another panel-y thing. And um, yeah, I am going to be talking a lot about football today um, because it all seems to converge towards that. Um, we've got a World Cup happening shortly. The A-League starting. Um, there's been a few developments that are worth talking about that are football-ish. Um, so what better thing to do to bring a couple of comrades, wanderers, lefties, westies, lots of intersectionality shit going on there. It's brilliant. So the, the panellists that I have today, uh, I brought in Fred again for another go at the panel stuff. Um, this time he's wearing his wanderers hat, so probably swear a bit more this time compared to the last time he was on here. And uh, also, back after a little while, I've got Carlo, who is also a wanderer. Previously on... Doing in your side. And this is my third episode. I'm chatting with Carlo over Skype. Give us a bit of a spiel about yourself. Well, for probably been uh, on the, the left of year, like since going back into the, the 90s in Perth, I've been a socialist and also... Bit writer uh, and as you say, a comic. I've done a couple of solo shows. These guys are in the RBB, so they're standing up, doing TIFOs, throwing out confetti, and just making the odd disparaging remark to the opposite <laughs> fan. <laughs> Basically just not stopping until the end of the match. So, yeah, a couple of fit dudes I got with me as well. So, how's it going, guys? Yeah, good, good. Pretty good, pretty good. Getting ready for uh, tonight's game. So, this is a nice yeah. little warm-up. Yeah, I have to kind of try and build this through because it's like literally you guys have got a match to go to. So, um, I think I've got, got you guys got in the mood at least. 
got the pub to go to before the match. Yeah. Know, so it's, it's a busy schedule. It's a busy afternoon. Yeah, so if I've got the the ritual right, it's like uh, you you turn up at Para, you go mm. to the Woolpack, you have a few drinks, then you j- converge in the march. Uh, you march onto uh, Wanderers slash Bankwest Stadium, um, and then you go into the um, non-seated section behind the goals. Have I got the, the, the yeah. way the schedule works on match day? Yeah, although I think the official RBB pub I forget what yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure um, it's Crown. It's if I a Crown, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the march so will be the, gone from there. The official pub's changed. Yeah. Really? It's no so it's not the Wolfpack anymore? No. no, it was for a couple of, first couple of years it was. And then it's been various other ones. Actually, I think it's been the Crown one for a while. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's it was, really crowded to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. The problem was Wolfpack basically got too small. Okay. Um, it then moved to Roxy, which closed down. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and then it moved to uh, Collector's Tavern. And yeah. then the last, maybe... When I say the last few seasons, that includes COVID, which was a lot with no spectators. So yep. um, the last few years has been, uh, I'm pretty sure it's it's the it's called Crown, but it's on uh, Church Street. Yeah. Okay. So how long's the march from there? Uh, not, it's not hugely long because it's not that far from Alfred Park. So okay. it sort of just basically goes to Alfred Park, um, yeah. which is at, at sort of the top end where the theatre is, Riverside Theatre is, you know, yeah. that park area. Yeah. And then marches from there. So it's not, it's not particularly long. It's like... Two blocks, but that, that also has to do, which I'm sure we'll get to in the in the discussion, yeah. the fact that the police are not particularly keen on allowing us to march through Parramatta. So, well, do, do you guys like during the march? Like, do you go through the park, or do you have to go around, like stay on the streets? Like, how does it work? No, no, through the park, through through, the through, park? through Alfred Park. Yeah, yeah. Basically. It, it's, it essentially becomes a kind of gathering point. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I see how that works. Uh, today is game day, um, and as Fred's saying, we, we can talk a bit more about the Wanderers stuff, um, as being the Wanderers fans and all. Let's maybe just get straight to it. So the season's started, and I know at the end of last season, it was the typical story as it's been in yeah. the last <laughs> few seasons, where Wanderers suck, the coach gets the arse, um, widespread squad change. And the RBB just basically gets pissed off and doesn't turn up to matches anymore for the rest of the season. So everything's just was basically true to form. But I reckon that's probably a good jumping point um, where we can talk about the RBB. So if someone just wants to just firstly say what an RBB is and then exactly uh, in a nutshell the history of the RBB and then... If you're so inclined, maybe talk about the antagonistic relationship that's happened throughout time between the RBB and the Parramatta local area command. <laughs> the local constabulary. Yes. Well, I mean, RBB stands for Red and Black Block, which is the active support group for the Western Sydney Wanderers. So the fans who will sing, as you say, all, all game and organise TIFO, organise those displays and just generally make as much noise and colour in support of the team as, as possible. And, yeah, I mean, the RBB founded in the first season and sort of very quickly, very quickly, I think, took off uh, and became, you know, one of the one of the um, most successful active support groups, I think, very, very quickly. And it became a big thing about going to Wanderers games for the atmosphere. And I know, I think probably Fred had similar experience, like the first going to the first Wanderers game, feeling of the RBB and the celebrations and all that afterwards, really, it is... I think there's an RBB chant that says it's like a drug or whatever, and it kind of is. We crave a different buzz One that hits us like a drug Oh, we're Sydney The last few years have been tougher 
than they were in those first earlier years. But I, I think, yeah, it's it's just an enormous amount of fun. I don't know, Fred, if you want to talk about the other issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, uh, perhaps to add a little bit to that as well is, you know, the, the RBB emerges in parallel with the emergence of the club itself, um, which, you know, is a process of consultation with the Western Sydney community uh, from the FFA, the Football Federation Australia, mm. who were looking to build a new club in the area, mm. but, but were wanting to engage the community in a discussion about how that should happen. So the, the RBB happens in parallel to that. So it engages in that discussion um, in terms of the name of the club, the colours of the club, uh, but it also then creates its own identity as, as almost well, yeah, pretty much every, I'd say, A-League club has an active support group. The RBB builds itself as the active support group uh, of, of the Wanderers. Uh, and it, you know, it, 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 it starts at all the pre-season games of, of the Wanderers, of the, the friendly games, before it, um, it actually has its first official game at Parramatta Stadium. And it's yeah, basically gone on from there. Of course, it's been a, a very difficult time for the RBB, um, on and off the field. You know, like, but I think probably what we're here to discuss more is perhaps some of the stuff that happens off the field, which is the, the constant police harassment mm. um, that comes about when you have predominantly young men generally not necessarily from Anglo backgrounds although it's a very it's a broad mix within the RBB mm. um, but certainly you know uh, the, the sort of uh, if you want to say the creation story which is obviously every creation story is slightly exaggerated but is you know where, where the name comes from is a, is a, um, a Chilean socialist and a Croatian anarchist and then you know flowing up names so you know black block red and black block there's there's not a, a coincidence that the name comes from that I also not trying to pretend that the RBB is an anarcho-socialist uh, organisation either, but there's a reason why the name comes about. And as I said, it, it's, not a, it's not a surprise that it's a Chilean and a Croatian who play a big role in the formation. They're not the only ones, though, of course, as well. As I said, mm. every creation story is uh, much nicer than the actual story, but a very multicultural group of young men in Western Sydney. And if there's a group of people that police generally don't like, exactly. uh, it's uh, young men in Western Sydney. Probably First Nations people first is on the list of people they hate, and I'd say a close second is... Young, young, young men of non-Anglo descent in Western Sydney. So it's created problems pretty much from, from day dot in terms of relationship with, with the local police. Yeah. I mean, I've got the hot theory that Wanderers were... Like, we, we taught... We, like, I think it's pretty common knowledge, at least amongst the football people, like the success of the club, particularly in the first few seasons. Um, and I think the peak of that was winning the Asian Champions League. Um, 2014? Was 2014? Oh. Was that... Yeah. And that happened, yeah. The Western Sydney Wanderers, champions of Asia. I don't think even then we appreciated just what they had gone through to achieve this. Um, it was only sort of in the aftermath that you go, wow, this took some serious effort, serious courage, serious skill. Prior to our success, there was only hope. Now it's been done, and it can be done. So a little while ago now, um, and that was where um, I think uh, the things really hit its peak but I think at that time there was two things that was going on that I think informed the success of the club in my mind is that one there was relatively good relations with the RBB cops the general fan base there was a relative harmony there 
The other thing as well is that there seemed to definitely still be some sort of connection between the club and its response to the fan base. So basically, I think when you look at how the Wanderers was created, like the colours, the name, the ethos of the club, the aspirations, the goals, that all came, as Fred mentioned, through the fan forums. Sorry, the, the fan forums that the FFA created. And that's not to say that there was a bunch of discussion um, prior to the formal fan forums as well. So there was definitely a lot of ideas being thrown around exactly what the club should be and what it should look like. And I can actually remember the first fan forum that I went to. It was at Mount Pritchard. Everyone had been there about a month, uh, an hour before, so they were quite merry by the time the fan <laughs> forum started. Vis-a-vis, they were smashed and really wanted to speak their mind. Um, and in the panel was... Um, Mark Bosnich, um, the dude who was the head of the FFA at the time, Lyle Gorman, who was the chair. What? Was it David Gallup or someone else? Nah, that was before David Gallup. It was um, Ben Buckley. That was his name from the AFL, and then they dragged him in. So this is going way back now when you think about it. Lyle Gorman, who was the first coach, um, and also... Who else? It felt like there was a fourth... Not not, not coach, but club, club executive... Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Club executive. Yeah, I don't think Popovich was there as the coach. I think he was just around around that time they were just announcing him as the coach. And that was basically the only bit of personnel yeah. um, that they announced that we knew that was happening at the time. So at that time, it's like colours weren't decided on. It was just basically tabula rasa other than like Popovich being announced as the coach. So that's there seemed to be that um, real reflect like exchange. Um, yeah. So people... Fans said, this is what we want. And then they go, okay, cool. And then there was a lot of voting. Um, there seemed to be like some general consensus as to the colours and having the hoops as the motif on the strip. So that stuck. So I just think, and I mean, I, and what struck me is this, and this is particularly through my own background as a community development worker, like projects tend to be successful if they're actually informed and there's an evidence base set by the people that, that basically are within the community, right? You don't prescribe stuff. And you let people people determine it themselves because that's what's so important about active support. I think is mm. it's the way the, the fan who controls nothing else mm. gets to intervene into the spectacle and participate in it. Like it's a very participatory way. You're not simply just sitting there passively watching. You are part of the club in a very active way. And the club itself has had to ride a contradiction that it's ridden in different ways at different times, like gone in different directions. And that is, on the one hand, it, it really needs something like the RPB and it needs it to be successful and it needs it to channel that passion in order to actually make it an attractive thing for people to come to and want to come to. On the other hand, it has all the pressure from the football authorities, a very racist media, uh, an overzealous police force that just sees this as not only do they hate these people, it's for them, it's like great opportunity for resources and powers. You know, the, the racist demonising of football fans, as, as Ellen Jones said, worse than ISIS at one point, or as bad as ISIS. Yeah. Um, that's great for the police, great to justify all the overtime, all the powers, all, the, all that kind of stuff. And the club at different times has kind of lent in different directions, I think. It has tried to curtail the RBB, and in one case it even tried to replace the RBB, and it failed because there was no one willing to do it. Oh, really? Yeah, that was, um, I forget which season it was, but we were out at... Um, Olympic Park at the time. At the start of the season, I think it was, they put out a call for a new active support group. Uh, because tensions with the RBB were beyond 
they were beyond breaking point, really, and it sort of healed a little bit since then. But, I mean, this is the point at which they would allow the security to just arrest your capo, like, for okay. example. I mean, like, our capo got arrested one... I mean, this is... Plenty of people have been arrested and banned over over the years, and it goes up and down. But I remember one went because we sing... Because we were called by the cops grubs. The police commissioner, or deputy police commissioner, said Wanderers fans were grubs. Mm. And so he's saying, we are the grubs of West Sydney. Go fuck yourself, ACAB. And that's quite common. But this particular day, the police went to the capo, if you sing that again, we'll arrest you. So he stood down um, the next time it came to sing that chant and didn't sing it. Uh, and then they dragged him out. Okay. Uh, and then even worse, like one of the fan liaison people who like work for the, supposedly worked for the club, um, went to the police, what, the, what on earth are you doing? And they arrested her. And the, p- the club threw her overboard and said she's a contractor, not an employee, but a contractor. Okay. So you've got to understand that this, like, that's probably, that kind of thing happens a lot. Uh, and then at other times, the club leans in the other direction because if it allows the RBB to just be crushed, why then its own story about the club is badly weakened? You know, story of this is for West Sydney, the passion, all that kind of things that made it such a, an attractive thing to begin with. And so they kind of ride that contradiction. Yeah, because it, it, it goes down to like, you know, the, a big contradiction at the heart of Wanderers. And no, it's not exclusive to Wanderers, but to, well, I mean, to much of the A-League. So, you know... Why do they have the participatory forums to start with? It's because they want to ensure the club is sellable as a franchise and someone will be willing to buy it. And they understand, given the nature of Western Sydney, that has a history of local football clubs uh, dating back to the old NSL days. Many of the clubs still exist, and I imagine we may get onto one particular of those clubs as part of our discussion a bit later. But how do you deal with that? situation where there are already existing clubs that have strong support bases nothing on the level of existing a-league clubs but you have to be able to go into that area and get people on board from from day one because if you don't then you can't sell that franchise on because the wanderers was always meant to be then sold off and be a franchise just like all the other clubs in the a-league the reality is that while sales participation in deciding the names um and the colors there isn't like what is quite common in other countries where you have a vote for the president of the club, mm. uh, where you have regular decision-making forums or certainly at least consultative forums. There are occasional ones that, that are held. Uh, but ultimately, the Wanderers is just like every other club in the A-League, which is a franchise that tomorrow the, the league can decide to sell to someone else and could, or, or, or just dismantle it altogether if they, if they feel that it's of, of no use. So that's the, the big contradiction. So the owners, therefore, are a bit like what, what Carlo was saying, we're a bit torn between, well, they understand that the RBB brings that kind of uh, atmosphere to the games that attracts others to want to come to the games, but they also see it as a liability. So what they would love to have is just a pliant group who turns up to make noise and music yeah. um, that they can then sell. But funnily enough, uh, many of the people in the RBB are not particularly interested in, no. in just being a, a, a one more commercial aspect of, of, of the day um, that the club can then sell uh, and use to promote themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's about outside that commercial thing. That's why people like it so much, but it's because it's not part of that. You know, so Everything's so commodified. The RBB is a space and other active support groups are a space to intervene in a genuine non-commercial way. I think for me it's a, a fine example of, um, of privatisation because I think the first 
few seasons there, I think it was definitely um, a lot of convergence there between community development of the club and this was done through the FFA, providing very much uh, proactive ways of, of, of coming in, uh, of, of building up the club. Um, like Lyle Gorman, the uh, the chairman, or the, the first chief executive of the club, he was on the FFA books, I believe. So the thinking was set things up for a few seasons and then bring it to the marketplace but the problem is is that it just there was that thinking that you basically the market will basically take it on and um and run with it but it didn't happen and the main the big indicators of that was uh the the antagonism between uh, rbb and the cops increased and also they started really sucking on the pitch um and crowds started to dwindle and you can use the um, excuse of COVID, but uh, I think this stuff... It was already stuff, happening, yeah. It was already happening, and I think we can kind of provide grand theories on, on why that happens. And I think uh, this is where I introduce my flourish, that um, the, the Wanderer's story definitely has some political resonance here. Well, I think there's, yeah, there's lots of aspects. I mean, the fact that we had to move stadiums as a result of the rebuilding of the old Parramatta Stadium to Combank now. I mean, I Combank is keep changing yeah. the name of it. You yeah. know, you know what's because it was Bank West, but I think now it's Combank. Some but it is, bank. Yeah. but you know, it's but that's, yeah, yeah, that's Parramatta Stadium. Yeah, yeah, that's a point. So all of it, you know, it's it's again, it's this. You know, because even, even going back to the formation of the Wanderers, it was like trying to be sold as like, yeah, we're the club from West Sydney that provides space for, you know, because many of the original players from the first team were people from Western Sydney who had gone and played in other clubs and came back to help help form the team. So there was all that attempt to create that narrative and story. But then you're torn with this thing of like, well, under competitive football, you've, you've got to get your TV ratings, you know, you've got to get the, the turnstiles and the club hasn't really been able to w- work out how to maintain that. Obviously, the first few seasons, that combination of the RBB together with the success on the pitch because obviously that the two things go together but even for the few years where the team wasn't as successful you were still in those first years at Parramatta Stadium you're still getting big turnouts yeah. it, it's in part of the reason why they needed to look for a bigger stadium that was you know part of the motivation not the sole and motivation make the stadium more purpose built for yeah. a football game yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah like I said it, was, it wasn't the only reason there are other reasons in terms of making such a stadium suitable for potential world cup bids and stuff like that, which the old Parramatta Stadium wasn't but there was a you know there was a, a sort of a market logic there that mm. you could sell more tickets uh, uh, if you had a bigger stadium but the problem is is that combination of the on-field results yeah. the the impact that had moving to Homebush uh, for several years while the rebuilding and the, the tensions with the active support group um, as Carlo said with the police yeah. with the club um, what that meant for spectators because it because of course all of that tension goes beyond just the RBB because there are many families who don't sit in the RBB but turn up and go, why on earth is there so many police? And you don't really like taking your kids to no. a place where there are so many police. No, like, there's riot cops at a sporting game. Yeah, right? exactly. Like Generally, when you turn up somewhere and there's a lot of police, you think, okay, something must be about to go wrong here. And yeah. in general, nothing goes wrong at those games. But it's not a conducive atmosphere no. to taking your kids. So that's what the clubs you know, had to 
figure out, well, what does it do in this context? Of course, it also has to pay us an aspect of the police deployment. So there's a, there's a material interest from the police to have to justify such a huge, <laughs> yeah. huge turnout because they, they're all getting paid for this. You know, this is not being done for free. This is their money's coming from, from somewhere and, and it's paying overtime to police officers. And, and, and they've got like to that. have the output, so vis-a-vis, yeah. like there needs to be crowd control. And I think that that point about if you have a lot of police it tends to create incidences that wouldn't... like So it creates a problem, mm. right? Because people are tense and people are on edge. Mm. And the, if the police are in your face and they off... You know, in the worst cases with the RBB, they absolutely are as provocative as anything, right? Really provocative. Sooner or later, you're going to get... A, you know, you're going to get some young guy in the RBB who's going to, like, snap. You know, like, or, yeah, people, people get jack of it, like, you know, and it creates incidences that would not happen if the police weren't there. But then that justifies the police. Oh, well, see, so you need these. Po- yeah, Carla can speak from personal oh, experience. Yeah, yeah, I was arrested. I got banned from Paris Stadium, where it was called at the time. Was it Bankwest at the time? No, no, it was Paris Stadium in Paris Stadium in the old days. That's, yeah, that's why they need to change the title of the stadium, yeah. Carlo. Yeah, yeah, the scene of the crime. Besmirched the ground. Yeah, no, but I was like, that was it was at the height of the police problems. Really, there was so many police at this game or whatever, and it was really tense. And basically, yeah. like. A sergeant assaulted me, like shoved me off a chair and then arrested me for assaulting a police officer. Like, yeah, you get dragged out of the arm behind the back and they put me on the grass and then this guy, a couple of minutes later, is dragged out like he was sort of near, sitting near me and they put him down next to me and I said, what happened to you? And he said, I said to him, what the fuck did you do that for? Uh, and they've done me for offensive language. Now, and they just get on the spot to a month ban. Now, when it comes to court, my legal team got subpoenaed the CCTV footage and as soon as the cops figured that out they didn't drop the charges they just didn't show up in court so I had to show up in court mm. right and even the prosecutor's gone like I don't know where the police officer is uh, and in the end I think it was the police officer was in a remote location or something like that it on unplanned. holidays no I think it was on holidays yeah, it, yeah. It was around all that side, and the and the magistrate's like, "Well, what the hell is this?" Awards me costs and all the rest of it, but I still couldn't get the ban overturned. And, and that happens not just to me; like a lot of people have variations of that, and that's all, yeah, that's what, particularly the teams losing and all the rest of it. It does interconnect; like you can't separate them out. Like either the on-field stuff yeah. and the off-field stuff, they definitely go together in both the positive and negative. That's yeah. an ongoing concern as well that I've, I kind of see there that there doesn't seem to be any internal mechanisms between the FFA and the club and what to do in the instance of a ban. Like, you can implement it. Is there a right to review? Is there a yeah, right exactly. to challenge it? Like, what are the well, terms of, of administering it? There doesn't well, that's seem why to be we had the, the fan strikes. We had, like, the largest sporting fan strikes in 2015, 2014, 2015 in Australia's history exactly for that. Um, yeah. And that was all the active support groups. The FFA, simply from a fan's point of view, does not have our back. Pretty much everyone in football um, stood up for the fans. And uh, Melbourne Victory and Western Sydney Wanderers, two of the biggest fan groups, um, staged a walkout after 30 minutes for basically, number one, not sticking up for the fans. And number two, and this is the main thing, there was no proper appeals process. And they've been told, the FFA, and told and told and told by everyone basically, you've got to sort this out. You need to have your leaders of your active ends talk to other leaders. You may not get along all the time, but if you talk to a leader that you get along with, he may get along with your rival and you can come to an agreement to force change. And what about administrators around the world perhaps watching this? What would you say? Don't take us for granted. 
you know, every other weekend are singing diss chants about each other, you know, going on collective strike. Uh, and the FFA agreed to those type of things and then failed to implement them full stop. <laughs> like, just didn't really implement them. Well, that, that kind of brings me to my final point before we might move on to the next issue. I think that's what typified the mid-2010s. Like, we started seeing a lot of, like, active, like, politically active stuff that was happening amongst fan bases. And we are seeing that across the clubs. Like, there was definitely, like, cross-club solidarity at some points. But the response, it wasn't really, really any incremental reform from the FFA yeah. after that. So I think that really did contribute to, never mind COVID, why... The active Definitely. support movement culture, however, what whatever have you, kind of fell away uh, okay. because the goodwill went away. So I wonder what are the prospects now? Like, can there be a resurgence yes. of that stuff? Is there probably a bit more of a sports administrative option now? Like, I mean, we got rid of JT. That seemed to be fun. JT being the last executive yeah. of the Wanderers. So where to from here? Do you guys think? Look, I think the thing, and I think the smarter heads you know, in football, well, A-League is now a separate thing, and hopefully in the clubs, realise that particularly a, a league like the A-League really needs active support because anyone with an internet connection can watch infinitely better quality football, right? Yep. Nobody really is going to, beyond the chance to go and support a local team and be there in person and have a good time, mm. why would you just watch the A-League? Like, it's... And even if you don't pay money, you'll find a dodgy stream to go watch better clubs. So there needs to be an incentive there to turn up to the matches at least, um, let alone having a, a, an active and politically active fan base. Fred, I know that you wanted to say a few things, so if you want to crowbar it all together. <laughs> no, no, look, I, I think in terms of... Look, look, we have to be honest that the last few years, for a whole bunch of reasons, has had a big impact on active support groups all across the country. We've talked a little bit about the RBB, and what it's had to deal with. But then you have Melbourne Victory's old group, Northern Terrace, basically disbanded, you know, just because it just became untenable to maintain the relationships they had in their area with the local police and the club as well. And that's not to say they don't have a new active support group and all that. But, um, you know, a lot of those active support groups that sort of fed off each other and had grown over time have very much been sort of uh, beaten back, you know, by the authorities who as I said at the start, want, want them to be there but simply as one more commercial aspect of what they can sell. Because Carlo's right, the, that's the, really it's the only reason you would go to an A-League game. You're not going there for the football. In fact, when people do go there just for the football, they very rarely return just for the football. You go there because it's going to be a good night and even better if the club can convince you to become identify with the club then you're going to come to and become a member you know that's that's what they've got to figure out and that's the wanderers dilemma how do they literally sell themselves because it's a it's a business it's not a member member owned club it's it's a franchise how do they sell themselves so that people will turn up game after game and become members and then be able to use that for a financially useful purpose um, and they know that there's a few things they can try to sell one of them is that identification with Western Sydney. Hence why, you know, one thing I'll say that's good about the club as, as it's been in the last few years that perhaps does, doesn't get mentioned enough is its development of the youth leagues mm. that have meant, you know, and, and their establishment of a wondrous club out in, in Blacktown. When I say a club, not a, not a club in terms of you can go there for food and drinks, but in terms of like a training sports facility. 
And so really, you know, trying to ingrain itself in the community and trying to hopefully build up young players. Perhaps you could argue those young players haven't had enough of a fair go in the first league team. That's a discussion um, that, that could be had. But Rather than bringing in the mercenaries every season. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, and, and again, that's again that part of that financial challenge because sometimes to do that, you have to allow a coach maybe one or two seasons to blood those young players. And yeah, in one or two seasons, you will see those gains. But will people still keep coming to watch the games for one or two seasons where you lose? Sometimes it's just easy to bring in one high-profile player or a couple of more expensive players that have been tested that have already been in four different A-League clubs and uh, and at least you may get the results. The, the and that's a barrier in itself. Like um, the way that the contracts and the, the wages work within the A-League, you can only really bring a marquee player or a player of high quality in for like a season or two. Idealistically, you'd bring someone in for like a five, three to five-year contract. Of course, more often than not, they kind of buy out early, but, you know, at least the, the intention is there to bring in a player, build the squad around them, and it might even give a chance for um, for kids to kind of establish themselves because there's the mentoring stuff and there's also that idea, which I'm a big fan of um, of how it worked in Liverpool FC for all those years where it's like you've got the boot room boys and then they move up and they're eventually like Steven Gerrard, you know, um, who started from, from shining the boots. Yep. I can think of Daniel Wilmering um, with the Wanderers that's definitely taken that path for the real uh, yeah, he King was a ball boy, wasn't membership. He? Yeah. Yeah, during the first season, I believe, first, yeah. second seasons. So for me, like a few things, maybe to like, we've identified a dilemma, of course, um, but I just want to put a few potential ideas out there. Uh, I don't know if we've got time to really properly discuss them, um, but like the idea of, yeah, introducing like um, this idea where you're having a bunch of Westy kids come into the club, you grow into the club, and then eventually you either become like a long-term player or it provides that adequate springboard into Europe rather than going to Europe and just trying your best and see what happens, that playing the Harry Kill lotto basically. For all the kids out there, Harry Kill was a soccerist player. Bloody hell. Um, <laughs> I have literally had conversations where they don't remember that guy. Oh, God. Um, the other thing as well is that um, having, and this is the Barcelona model, where you've got memberships that actually have the right to vote on board matters. Why not try to introduce that? And I was hoping that was something that was going to happen when FFA started dwindling away. So it was like the withering of the state. And then it's like class representation would be the, the members being able to vote on like as a board member. So you'd have like a multitude board. So those are the like couple of ideas that, that I've, I'd be thinking of. But, you know, reasons at the moment, you, you can't really get there. So I just maybe... Very quickly, if you guys had some thought on those ideas. Yeah, well, again, it, it, it comes back to that problem. Like, I mean, yeah, ev everyone felt like that was the logical conclusion or the logical direction of, like, the fan forums would lead to a representative club, except the A-League is a franchise league. Mm. So it, it can't contain the two. So it was kind of ne – that was never really going to happen in reality. I mean, perhaps outside of some mass political movement or whatever that, that forced the FFA to go that down that direction, but that was never at all their intention. And that dilemma plays itself out everywhere because this is, for instance, some of the discussions that you have about the red and black block. And well, how do you build that as well? Because one of the restrictions for a long time that the FFA has had, and which has slightly been modified now because of the safe standing area, but is that – 
Every ticket holder has to have a seat. The idea being because if they cause trouble, they can be identified by where they are sitting. And in fact, generally, I'm meant to be sitting. Mm. Uh, generally, allowances is made for, for the active support group. But then how do you get new people who want to just experience it for the first time if, yeah. you, if you can't get into the area unless you've bought a year-long membership and those yeah. areas are closed off to others? So it's kind of like, oh, we want to develop these active support to give atmosphere, but the only way someone can come and try it out and be part of it and find out if they want to be part of it is by buying a year-long membership and giving all their details over to the club, who then, therefore, I have no doubt, give it over to the police when the police say, oh, well, we had an incident, so we now need to know everyone who was in that area. Yeah. And that's where the FFA rules basically work against what they sort of would like to see happen. Except, as I said, it's not really against what they would like to see happen. They, they would just want to manufacture some kind of atmosphere on the day, but that's something that's not organic. The problem is, is like I said, most people are not interested in that. People aren't interested in coming to be uh, unpaid volunteers to create a bit of noise on, on the side. People come there because they want to support their team. They want to meet together as friends, as people who come together only because the only thing that brings them together is their support uh, yeah. uh, for the Wanderers and, and have a good time and, and express their voice yeah. In the good and bad times, about how they want to see their club uh, function and how they want to see their club develop. Or get a mortgage out the back of Campbelltown, become a Bulls fan, or buy into <laughs> the idea of brand consciousness and put some more oil in your hair and become a Sydney FC fan. Okay, Carlo, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is a difficult one because I think definitely some sort of fan ownership is a preferable model, but you can also see where you do have it. Yeah, you know, Barcelona and the German League as well. Mm. It's, it's not a silver bullet, like it's better, but it doesn't do away with the commercial pressures and things like that. It depends how it's implemented. And in that sense, anything that you can get structures where they have to consult with fans, I think the RBB themselves can do better on that. Like I think one of my one of the best things the RBB did was around the time of the fan strikes and then we had a little you know, breakaway group, um, Western, West Terrace, um, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of allegations flying around about, oh, you know, the people in the RBB were corrupt or, you know, because they got their mates onto the bus before, you know, like all these frankly quite petty things that nobody outside those small circles has any ability to judge. Uh, they did a fan. They, I mean, they did a they did a, an RBB like mass meeting, basically, and mm. were able to explain their side of things and let people talk. And I think that was – I remember I got a lot out of that. Uh, and I think it helped connect the broad because you know I'm not part of any you know we're not part of any we go every game and sing with the RBP we're not part of the leadership structures or whatever decision making about what TIFO is going to be or anything like that. Carlo, I just want to cut in there yep. that mass meeting who yeah. organized that i've still continued to go to the fan things that happen at the end of the season last time i went though it was basically just like jt talking yeah. for half of it and then it's like by the end of it everyone's too exhausted and too intimidated to say anything this was the rbb itself did it yeah um I, I i think because of the split and because of all the social media rancor or you know all the rancor and rumors and all the rest of it they felt the need to bring people together explain their side of the story and try to keep people on board. Yeah, so that broader, so it was like you know, the core of the RBB and the broader people who will go along and sing with the RBB mm. uh, to get them, uh, you know, or broader fans who like the RBB. Um, you know, they may not always be in the RBB. They may sing part of the games when the RBB brings them involved, but they really love the RBB. To bring them together and explain what's going on, explain both the issues around the fan strike and the issues around this split in the RBB and their perspective on things. 
yeah. And so I think that it's not really their perspective to do that more broadly, uh, and I'm not here to tell them what to do. They're the ones who put in a huge amount of effort. But I think that would help if they were willing to do that because that, it's not just about them and the club. It's about them and you can see on social media sometimes the fans are more or less... You know, they go, oh, you're giving them an excuse, you're letting off flares, you're doing this wrong, whatever, to the RBB. And the RBB can often be, well, fuck you, we're the ones who actually create this atmosphere. Mm. I think mechanisms to enable the RBB and broader people in the RBB and broader fans to have a dialogue, to because to, it gets dangerous and the RBB can get isolated and easier to pick off for the police. And, and we've seen yeah. that and you've literally seen that, <laughs> Carlo. Yeah. You've got the court documents to prove yep. that. <laughs> Um, Fred, final word? I was just going to say, the, the, the other aspect of, of that meeting that I, I recall as well was it wasn't just an information meeting but, but a participation meeting. Yep. So it was discussed, for instance, okay, well, what was our tour of duty going to be for that, for that year? Like, what was the big away game? You know, obviously, apart from Sydney FC away and Melbourne Victory away, which, you know, always is a big away day, but that year was everyone said, let's go to Wellington. You know, let's, everyone knows when the Wellington game is going to be. It's obviously a bit of a hassle to get to New Zealand, to another country to go to a game, but... This year, let's make sure we get a good turnout. And there was other issues that were discussed there as well about, you know, uh, pubs, as, as we talked about, where, where to meet before games and, you know, those other aspects of... Where sort of to support the players when they're on strike? That was an issue that came up because the, the basically the people who split, a lot of them didn't... They were they infamously yelled at the players when the players were threatening a strike over pay. Yeah, and the RBB leadership stays like, no, we were on the side of the players. They, they're, mm. they're right. The same way, they've got to deal with the club like we've got to deal with the club. That's probably an interesting segue, Carlo, to what I want to talk <laughs> to next because we're seeing, even within the fan base, you see with the Wanderers, like the RBB, you see those political tendencies. You've got, I remember seeing like a few seasons there, like, and I mean, this is probably the limitations of being in a podcast, but you'd see people doing the gesture with their right hand where it's like fist on the heart and then right hand up in the air, fist on the heart, right hand up in the air, right? Yeah. I saw that a few times within, uh, what was, what's the ultra within the ultra? North, is it Northgate? No, that's, that's one of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I saw that for a few seasons. So even within the fan base, there is that left, right tension, which kind of brings me to my next issue with what happened like a few yeah. weeks ago. The FFA Cup final yeah. um, was held at Parramatta, Bank West, all the Bank Stadiums. Um, and, and now called Australia Cup. Australia Cup. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it's gone back to the old name that, 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 that the, the sort of uh, yeah um, cup used to have here. I think they call it Australia's Wonderland Cup or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, so anyway, like that thing. Uh, and that was between Bulls and Sydney United. It sounded like um, Sydney United Ultras basically occupied the usual spot that the RBB um, sits on uh, or stands on at the stadium. But we kind of noticed a few incidents and a few bits of behaviour that um, that kind of... Uh, well, so did the meet. Everyone noticed. Attempts by supporters to drown out the Aboriginal welcome ceremony at Western Sydney Stadium before kick-off are being investigated. The FA said on Monday it had issued a show-cause notice to semi-professional side Sydney United 58 demanding the club respond before sanctions are imposed. The board added that it is working with New South Wales Police to determine a strong and rapid response to identified antisocial behaviour. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about that one? 
Plus a coin. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll take the, the difficult... Well, yeah, I mean, obviously... I mean, Sydney United have a sec, sec, section of their fans, you know, from the Croatian community who are very associated with far-right Croatian politics and basically fascists and neo-Nazi, and they put on a fascist display. Like, they, you know, like, you know, filled with sea kales and all, you know, and all the rest of it. The thing about it is... I would say is that that became a controversy because it was put on TV. They do that every week, every single week, and you know, like with a uh, you know Joel, who's a Wollongong Wolves fan, he goes, he's in major, he's in that little act, he's in their active support group, and um, you know, every time they play Sydney United, they face basically threats of violence from these the, people. The thing I've got to ask here, Carlo, is that has it always been that way? Like, has there been a continuum? From the NSL days through to the time where there's been the name change from United to United 58 to Sydney United 58 and like hanging around in the Premier League and then up until the point of the Australia Cup final. Has that always been happening week in, week out? Or given world events where you've seen the rise of fascism in certain countries and the threat of the rise of fascism in first world nations... Is there a feeding of that that's been expressed within ultra groups that can happen quite within clubs like Sydney United or bits of both? Quite possibly. I don't feel I can answer that because I just don't, like, I don't know enough about. Like, I, I think it's it's definitely not new and, yeah, been around for a long time. Mm. And it certainly not was only there at the Australia Cup. My point is that, you know, like in recent seasons, anyone who, you know, if you're an opposition fan group and you play Sydney United, you see them with their, their Hitler salutes and things like that. So it's not like whether it's gone worse because of world politics and things like that, uh, whether it's gone up and down, I don't know enough about it. But my point is just that, that just that this, is a, this isn't an issue just because of the Australia Cup. It's a, it is a serious issue and it does provoke difficult issues I think for football fans when that's then used by the football authorities to implement quite quite extreme repression against those fans mm. who politically should be rejected and I you know should be protested against you know like I you know like um, by other football fans other football fans should make it clear we don't accept those type of politics we don't want to see those type of politics on the terraces mm. but you see the football authorities who use their powers against football fans in very bad ways you know they've used counter-terrorist organisations to infiltrate and spy on active support groups. People get banned without a right of appeal, as we were discussing before. Well, you've seen security guard agencies actually contracted to do the espionage surveillance-type stuff. What was the one early on? Motor... Hatamoto. No, exactly. And And so you see, like, you know, for example, when the football authorities do things like they... You know, one of the Sydney United fans who... The Hitler salute, and he got banned for life. Now, I completely reject his politics, but you cannot give the authorities that type of power. And nor should you, on the basis of anti-fascism, celebrate extremely authoritarian measures. I think that that is a big issue because it's not only going to get used against that fan and against neo-Nazi fans, it's going to get used against anyone who, for all the reasons we are talking about before, want want to have their own democratic involvement and participate but in a way that clashes with what the corporate structures want and what the clubs want. They will use those same things to crush them. And yeah. if you think about it, like I think what needs to happen is there needs to be 
you know, from fans themselves, the rejection of the politics. But if you think through what will happen if fans do that, you're in the opposite side and it gets Sydney United and you raise a banner, maybe not in a random game because no one really cares about an NPL game, but if it was like an A-League game or a, or a cup final and you raise a banner and you, know, you say no racism, security going to come and take that banner from you, uh, yeah. right? And if you try to resist that, you'll get banned. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's not only that those measures aren't the right way to respond, they also make the right way to respond harder. It makes it harder for fans to express themselves politically. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one because no one wants to see Nazis in the terraces. Um, but at the same time, when it's used by the authorities to strengthen their own powers, their own authoritarian powers, I don't see that that's anti-fascist at all. Yep, yep. So tyranny of regulation, I'm hearing. Fred? Yeah, so look, probably to, to add on to that, you know, like as someone who grew up actually not that far from, you know, Sydney United or previously Sydney Croatia's, you know, home ground and so has a bit of an understanding of, of where the club comes from without claiming to be an expert on it but like as I mentioned before like many of the other clubs in western Sydney these are clubs that are built by migrants in many most cases from European countries who have come here and obviously brought their love of the game here but also wanted to ensure that those clubs brought on or brought a bit of their home country and maintained that here in Australia now of course every country has its own specific histories as well and so you can only understand why it is that specifically Sydney United has this particular fan base where you also understand that many of the people who left Croatia were Croatian nationalists in the context of former Yugoslavia run by, a, you know, a communist. This is not the place to discuss whether it was communist or not, but communist Tito uh, regime. Mm. So unsurprisingly, their nationalism, probably I would say more than saying it was fascist, there were clearly fascist elements in there, including during World War II and the, their involvement in that. But I would say that a, a big part of the origins of Sydney, Croatia here is anti-communism, if anything. Mm. And so that, of course, breeds a strong ground for fascism. Mm. But and it's I not. Wanna, I want to draw a quick immigration parallel as well out Fairfield Way. That's sort of but different. The Chilean immigrants, yeah. you know, refugees from the Allende coup. Yep. So you're seeing a bunch of guys definitely to the left and it definitely shows when you hang with them, you know? Mm. You feel safe. It's always good to have a beer with. They have a huge hand in the Labanda uh, within the Wanderers. Yeah, yeah. So you, you definitely see the legacy of politics and immigration and how that informs the, the creation of football communities in Western Sydney. Absolutely. The Chilling community is one example. They, their, their clubs never got to quite the same level in terms of playing in the old NSL. But you have like clubs like the Colo Colo Club, which you know, uh, you know, has its certain sort of name that comes from the club in, in Chile, and that's a club that in Chile has been identified with you know opposition to the to the Pinochet dictatorship. So unsurprisingly, a lot of the supporters of that also have that identification. But to bring it even more real, is who is of course the classic rivals of Sydney United is the Bonnie Rig White Eagles, the Serbian community, <laughs> yeah. uh, and their club. Which also has their legacy, which, you know, again, it, it's not a, you know, I'm not, again, the fans are not communists, but they have a certain, you know, that their parents and grandparents still want to keep te teaching their children that Serbia that they remember. Well, that's um, about national survival. Like, I mean, that was the risk of entering into the partisan debate. Like, Serbia's coming from a place where they were being continually subsumed within balkanisation. So there was always that ongoing fight for national identity 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and so of course, so, so the generations today are removed from that, you know, because they, they haven't been, many of them probably haven't even been back to Croatia or, or Serbia, you know, even for a holiday, you know. But but it's it's something that's brought into the family. That's there's no no issue there, you know. Of course, what what does the FFA though wanted to do in that context is a whole process of de-ethnicizing all yeah. of these clubs. So that that's yeah. where the A League comes about because it's it's just decided and and a big part of it was the clash between. Old Sydney, Croatia, and Bonnie Ridings, yeah. um, where you know to the point where for like several years they just couldn't play with fans. You know when they played their derbies because it was just you know the police just said no, you're not allowed. You know after one big major incident, so, and that's what led to the the creation, I guess, of, of a place like Sydney FC. Like yeah. it was a reaction to that by doing a full corporate wash, and it's and also part of the reason why the FFA took the approach it did with the Wanderers. It understood you couldn't go into Western Sydney. And just say this is your club because yeah. firstly, a lot of people already have a club. Yeah, you can say, okay, how many people really go to see Marconi or Sydney United or whatever? Maybe not many. You know, compared to how many go to see the Wanderers, not not many. But that's a lot of people who already have a club they identify with, mm. and now yeah. you've got to give them a reason to support another club. And in many cases, some of them have two teams because they, you know, they feel like they're not really going to compete. You know, particularly as there isn't a second division, so there's not any chance outside of perhaps the Australia Cup. You may support Marconi, but also Sydney FC or Wanderers. You know they're not unlikely to clash against each other. Mm. Many have decided to just remain solely supporting their club and see see the A League as too commercialised. You know that the real football is mm. is what they play in, in in what is now the NPL. So that I think that's a that's a really important part. So it's in that context is what how do you deal with this issue? Well, you first you deal with it by understanding the history of it. You know, like it's the, the idea that just yeah somehow or all as Carlo said like. It's only became an issue because it was at the final of the Australia Cup. It's, this is not nothing new. It literally goes back to 1958, hence the 58 in their name, yeah. which is when the club club was established. How do you not yeah, deal with not, it? It's not unwashed log ball mentality. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. So how, how how do you not deal with it? Is essentially the way that that the the FFA have tried to deal with it, which is sort of basically, well, we're going to shove it down your throat, and if you don't like it, well, we're just going to ban you for life. Okay, well, what have you done? You've now certainly created one guy who's probably likely to now be definitely a fascist for life, because what what material interest does he have in rethinking his ideas if tomorrow he decides, actually, now that I've understood what I did was wrong, and I changed my politics um, through my own edu- self education, well, I still can't go to games anymore. And that's you know, and, that, and you know, so this is a ridiculous way uh, to deal with it. But of course, that's not the only issue that got the news. The other issue was the the welcome to country. There are conflicting stories, and I wasn't there. I'm pretty sure that there was definitely a section of Sydney United fans who booed it because they opposed it. Others argued that there was so much noise that they didn't even know what was happening at the time. I imagine there was probably a mixture or two. As I said, I imagine there were some that didn't realise what was going on and were just singing without you know, because I'm. We've been at Wanderers Games, we're only halfway through singing, we've realised the Australian anthem has been on. That hasn't been a deliberate thing, it's just we literally didn't hear what was going on, we didn't care, we were just having fun on on the terrace. That said, I am 100% sure that there was a group of Sydney United fans that were more than happy to boo boo the Welcome to Country. And you know that because you go to their Facebook pages and where they say, well, they give, you know, why do we need to be welcome to our country? We live here anyway, you know, like all the kind of racist crap that goes behind it. But, well, you've got to understand when you put on a public event like that, those things are going to happen. And it's, you know, to me, what I found sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, I don't know if it's jarring, ironic or, or what, is that many of the same people who are so outraged 
by this action. And I think justifiably so. Were many of the same people who were quite cheering on when the minute of silence for the Queen's death, uh, <laughs> certain fans, like for instance rain, uh, Celtic fans, um, were, were booing that or, 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 or making light of the Queen's death. And so, of course, well, then it comes to well, how, how do we decide what is the right and wrong thing that can be booed and, and not booed at, at these games? You've got to actually have that political discussion. And I think that's where actually the active support groups should take a stand on this. Yeah. But the last thing we need is, is the FFA yes. being given more powers to decide... Because what are, they, what are they fundamentally interested in? It goes back to what we are talking about the IBB. Putting on a nice, polite show that they can sell. They're not interested in fans. They're interested in customers. And ironically, that's one thing why Sydney United, amongst other of those MPL teams, maintain such a strong fan base is because... Their clubs are actually the opposite. They are fan-driven. You know, so that's why for the club, they did come out with a... I thought the club came out with a pretty good statement, can actually condemn, which would have been difficult for them because, as I said, there's a whole history to explain why these elements are in their active support. But they clearly said, look, we opposed what happened and we will do our best to find out who was responsible and deal with these in the appropriate measures. Whether they then do that or not, I don't know, but just the fact that they did that caused backlash amongst some, some of these people because they're like, what do you mean? We, we did nothing wrong. This is, this is what our club stands for. Mm. And it's, you know, so it's a different, different dynamic there because they, exactly. they're not a customer-based <laughs> a franchise. They're a club that for, since 58 have been built on not just the Croatian community because the reality is these clubs also play a role more broadly. But, of course, fundamentally what they're, what they're aiming to do is create an identity for, for yeah. certain communities, yeah. uh, migrant communities in Western Sydney and, and beyond. And I've got to assume as well that there's the tension that even runs even to the very board of United where there is the ones that sort of understand the tension between the greater fan base and fascist element um, and those that kind of want to oppose that and move on and then perhaps even those that are kind of like, well... You yeah. know, we're all one family. Yeah. Uh, we've all got the, the dodgy uncles yeah. and the cousins. Uh, <laughs> so be it. So, yeah, I think all of that kind of plays out. And I think that it's really good to, to really understand that as a start. Rather than dismissing it all as multicultural, bestiality football that happens out in Western Sydney because people just don't know any better. It, it, that stuff has to be challenged as well. So yeah. stop governing the game by media narrative as well. And you so, can see there's hypocrisy around it because for that, and, it, and the fact that it was because it was on televised for the thing, yeah. So it's fine. Every other football Australia is not; they're not idiots. They know that Sydney United fans go and give Nazi salutes every fucking every week. So you can see it in their attitude to flares. Like you get these repeated moral panics in the media, which yeah. are there, which are around fans letting off flares. And then you get the over-policing and you get the clubs will issue bans, the you know, football authorities will issue bans. But, like, everyone watching that Melbourne Victory Western Sydney Wanderers game could see active support on both sides letting off flares. Mm. Nobody said a word. The commentators just praise the atmosphere. It, it is a knee-jerk reaction to the media for their own reasons, because they're racist, because they actually have economic interests in NRL and AFL, are going out of their way to demonise walk ball, you know, like demonise soccer, you know, as an un-Australian sport, mm. then the football authorities and the club managements frequently think, oh, our response to that is we've got to bend over for it, we've got to go, we, we, we've got to, and then chase their own fans out of the game. But it's obviously, if it was a problem, if it's this massive problem to have flares let off, then it's always a massive problem to have flares let off. 
right? Mm. But Flair's getting let off at the moment and no one is saying a single word about it. No one's complaining about it. No one's... I mean, maybe people are getting banned because the cops there are probably going in and finding people and all the rest of it. But the fans who do that understand that. Like, they understand if you let off a flare, you put yourself at risk of being arrested. The issue for fans, why they went on strike, was people who didn't let off flares were getting arrested and banned for letting off flares, and they had no right to appeal. Yep. The active support group said, we understand it's illegal. Anyone who lets off a flare, we understand you're at risk of getting yourself arrested, and that's on you if you want to do it. It's th That level of hypocrisy makes it really difficult because it's sort of like... If it's okay, it clearly is. No one got hurt. You know, you didn't have to have a big point suspended and, you know, big, you know, like over-policing just because some flares got let off. Then that's always the case, even if the Daily Telegraph runs a front page demonising you. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's not uncommon to see A-League advertisements that feature snippets of active support with flares in the background. Like, this is the irony of it. The, the, yeah. They use that to sell it yeah. and at the same time say that this is outrageous that anyone would do it. And it's like, mm. well, that's the contradiction they find themselves in. Mm. It gets back to what we were talking about yeah. at the start. Yeah, I think maybe in a future episode we can talk about that nexus between sporting code rivalries, media coverage. I think there was one idea that myself and um, John Maguire, the usual suspect in my podcast episodes, we were going to talk about rugby league, but um, maybe we can broaden the net a bit and maybe yeah. incorporate a bit more footballing coverage to the, the debate as well. This episode has provided some food for thought for that. All right, we've got one more issue to cover, I think, before we can call it a day, or then again we get trapped inside um, yeah. Newtown. <laughs> we do get stuck here. Uh, um, and let's see if we circle this back to Wanderers as well. Oh, um, I'll find a way. <laughs> Everything comes back to Wanderers. <laughs> So I want to talk about what's going to happen next month. So a bizarre thing for me at the moment, like the World Cup. So it's going to be held at the time of the year, which isn't normally where the World Cup is held, um, I guess for climate reasons, um, because it's going to be held in um, the Middle East, where it's going to be the coolest, and it's still the pretty, pretty fucking hot, all things considered, but coolest time of the year there so hence holding it in november but it's the fact that it's in qatar as well the premise to which they were actually got world cup selection was um, pretty shaky how they built the stadiums was also built on shaky premises both literally and metaphorically um, and also on a industrial labor basis as well we've seen national teams do political statements there are universal values that should define football Values such as respect, dignity, trust, and courage. When we represent our nation, we aspire to embody these values. As players, we fully support the rights of the LGBTI plus people. But in Qatar, people are not free to love the person that they choose. Addressing these issues is not easy, and we do not have all the answers. We stand with Faith Pro, the Building and Woodworkers International, and the International Trade Union Confederation, seeking to embed reforms and establish a lasting legacy in Qatar. We're also seeing active attempts by Qatari authorities to make sure this stuff, any discussions or criticisms are minimised as much as possible. It all seems to be a potential uh, stinky thing that's going to happen next month. I wouldn't mind talking about that, but as well, not only just try to find some way of dovetailing Wanderers into it again, but also maybe talk about the prospects of women's football and how the positives of that can actually contribute to improving the international game as well. It's the only thing the U.S. women's soccer team has yet to win, equal pay. We've filled stadiums, we've broken viewing records, 
And yet, despite all of this, we're still paid less than our male counterparts. Megan Rapino, a star of the team, speaking to Congress on Equal Pay Day. If it can happen to me, with the brightest light shining on us at all times, it can and it does happen to every person who is marginalized by gender. You definitely see an amount of political expression that comes through the women's game starting to increasingly have some force and even influence on the men's version. So like I said, before we get trapped within the Newtown Neighbourhood Centre, if you guys want to have some thoughts and views on that, and then we might call it a day and hopefully get you guys to the Wanderers match on time. Go! Well, look, I... The obvious link is just the corporatization of the game. I mean, yeah. that's and that's what fundamentally explains what's what's going on in Qatar. There's money to be made, and that's why all other issues have been completely overridden. What's interesting, or partially interesting, about the Qatar stuff is that it's, if anything, the biggest protest actually coming from the players. Now, not many are going to boycott the World Cup. In fact, I don't know of any national team that qualified that is not going there's others that said they weren't going to go but they didn't qualify so it's sort of it's an e easier to say that once once you're not in there probably the most marked bit of activism i've seen is through the danish national team which will be one of the teams that australia will play against in the pool where they've blacked out their logos and sponsors yeah, on their right. strip for the world cup there are other examples where if i recall correctly i believe at least england but there might be other teams where harry kane as a captain is going to wear a rainbow captain's armband as well so in terms of lgbti rights so there yeah and and, and there's also just been general outspoken stuff around it I've, uh, when it comes to the fans it's different though because it's not that national countries don't have an active support but by the nature of the fact they don't play day in day out you don't have anything like the equivalent of the rbb or or you know or, or um sus you know sydney united's fan base for the australian national team or for the French national team. They're just groups of fans that generally just get together once in a while to support their national team. But there's not really been any kind of active movement by football fans beyond just general statements of opposition or, or you know, um, saying they're not going to go to Qatar. But the reality is the Qataris know that there's enough people that are going to go that they can, you know, from their own local population, from nearby countries, and there are still going to be travelling fans from, from the world that will still make this a, a huge, huge spectacle. But th this is the problem that we have, which is like a sport that has basically in large part become detached from its fan, converted into a purely commercial spectacle. That's fundamentally what it aims at. And so everything else is, is subsumed under it. Government and corporate entities involved in trying to embrace themselves into the sport uh, in order to sort of present themselves as, as something they're not. So this, this is a big challenge. The, the issue is, well... How in that context do you build on the existing active support groups that there are there? As I said, some of the player protests, which is obviously very difficult because these, you know, they're all also very well played, um, <laughs> very well played uh, sports people that we're talking about here. So, and have obviously a, a bit of a different interest to your ordinary ordinary punter. Um, but this is this is the the big challenge. Where, where does the women's football fit into that as well? Well, this this is the challenge actually that women's football is going to face because why is it getting more profile? Well, money is being injected into it. People have decided there's also money to be made here. <laughs> you know, there's 50%, a bit more than 50% of the population that are women and want to see themselves reflected in the yeah. sports that happen. So it's the window for co-option. Absolutely, absolutely. So the, the money is being put into that sport and that's great. That's absolutely, you know, no, no, you know it's, yeah. it's great to see that happening. But of course that comes with strings attached. Yeah. Uh, so how will this develop? Will it continue to develop or will it reach a certain ceiling 
where it actually be, is seen to be a threat to the men's sport. Or so, you know, they, all, all these challenges are, are, are going to happen and hopefully that fans who watch that and want to ensure that that development is done in a fan-friendly and player-friendly manner as well because as much as these players are now going to be getting bigger salaries than they would have previously when there was no money in the leagues, that doesn't mean that they're not being mistreated. It doesn't mean that they're now being forced to yeah. play two games a week, three games a week, that, that you know is doing permanent damage to, to their bodies, um, that they're not being used to basically sports wash you know, companies that are on their, on their jerseys or to go to play in, you know, in countries that they probably would prefer not to. How, how that can happen, and of course, it's very difficult. There's, we don't, we're not going to come up with the answer in the whatever few minutes we have before the alarms go off <laughs> in, in, in our neighbourhood centre. Yeah. But, but you know, that's it's it's a challenge. Uh, it's it's a good challenge. I mean, it's probably better than a situation where no one cared about the women's league and it just wasn't on TV and it just was like it was before. Yeah. But it's still a challenge, and it, that can't be ignored. It, it can't just be sort of purely seen as oh how great it is that now money's going into the into the women's league as well and how the names of the leagues are are, are being changed so it's you know it used to be a league and w league now it's a league men's and a league women's although of course when you go to the commentary yeah, they so they forget about that you know yeah, they yeah, yeah. still fall into the old oh, it's the a league and a league women's you know yeah but look those are positive things and they're not unimportant things, but they're not going to fundamentally change, you know, a lot of the issues that, that are present in a sport that's been, like all sports, you know, when we're talking about the biggest sport in the world, being highly corporatised where there's so much money to be made. Right. Yeah. Carlo, I'll give you the final word to yeah. wrap things up. So your challenge is, is to work out how football can improve, how it might um, incidentally lead to um, a worldwide revolution that's going to yeah. be sustained that's for generations to come, yep. um, and also how the Wanderers get involved in this as well to wrap things well, up. The, the, the first step in the world revolution is, is Wanderers actually win the league, that we win the championship. I think you can't really advance international class struggle until that happens. <laughs> so I think tonight is an important step on that. Uh, and anyone interested it in the class struggle tonight. should be watching. Ideally, they should be in the RVB singing if they cared about global oppression. They should be singing for uh, sure. Okay, cool. <laughs> Well, that, that, that sounded a bit more black and white than I was expecting. But there you, go. <laughs> oh, you want a nuance. I thought you could ask Hey, look, it's all little steps. It's all little steps. We start, we start, the first step is taken tonight. That no, no. Well, by the time this podcast comes out, that'll be too late. So, yeah, so we, we should say we'll that know, actually yeah. uh, that, uh, what in 12, 12 is how many? Three weeks from now yeah. is, is, is a derby against the, the, the ruling class Sydney FC yeah. squad. So that, that'll be the yeah, next, next, next important step, yeah. step to take. Okay. Yep. All right. Well. Um. Yeah. We can. We can kind of um play the the forums as they come and and the and the stages that are set and how we can learn the lessons from thereof and um. But I guess as a start, let's just learn the chants and then go from there, eh? It's a good starting point. <laughs> Who All do right. we sing for? We sing for Wanderers. <laughs> yeah. So I was just saying before the uh, the podcast, I'm kind of glad I got you guys. Before the match rather than after the match because I think <laughs> that would have happened for half yeah it would have been a different tenor to the discussion probably yeah yeah <laughs> all right well um thanks guys it's been a very interesting chat it's been great to to kind of finally have an episode where I can kind of do the sports and the politics and wash it all together and kind of keep it topical as well mm. and uh we'll see where we can go from there but there is that idea maybe to to actually talk about the football code so yeah who knows? Um, I think I've got some more phone jacks there. I might be able to get four of us and we can kind of hash it out regarding football codes in general and yeah. the politics thereof. But anyway, 
thanks very much, guys. Good luck at the match tonight. Uh, I will try to get there at a later or at a later game. But uh, yeah, be keen to, to catch up again, um, either yeah, not through the podcastingness, but at least at a Wanderers match. So yeah, for sure. Thanks, no, comrades. Thanks, thanks. Look forward love, to love, it. Love discussing this stuff. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'll see you guys later.